going in-depth on pro-life news and issues. I'm your host, Chris Gast, RLM's Director of Communication and Education. Thanks for tuning in. Today's feature, we're going to talk about our new end-of-life materials and kind of go through them in-depth about some really critical issues that every person really needs to be aware of. But first, let's get into a couple of news stories. Right off the bat, I wanted to give an update on the Jamarian Bennett case we talked about in the last episode of the podcast. Um, Jamarian Bennett passed away. Uh, very tragic. There's nothing that I can really say to add to the tragedy. Such a such a young life, and so um, we're uh, we're glad that the family was able to um, work it out with the uh, hospital. But uh, his, his life was cut short tragically, and so uh, we remember Jamarian Bennett. In uh, try to get an upbeat mood here. Uh, we just got news on Monday that the 200th uh, baby has been saved by our safe delivery law in the state of Michigan. Our safe delivery law uh, basically allows a woman to surrender a her child up to 72 hours after birth. The child, of course, has to be uh, uninjured to any emergency service provider uh, up to that 72 hours, and the surrendering can be done confidentially. And that ensures that the child will be safe and, and cared for, and uh, that the mother is, uh, again, confidential, uh, is not held uh, and accountable, basically surrendering their parental rights. Now, we passed this because of many years ago, back in 2000, the spate of stories about uh, babies that were be ab- being abandoned in the garbage uh, or being born in the bathrooms on prom night and abandoned. And so we really, uh, Michigan and many other states pass these laws in order to do something. And maybe you've seen uh, recently the the pro-life film Dropbox about a similar idea in uh, South Korea. And so uh, the 200th baby was surrendered under the law since 2001. And again, an emergency service provider can be an on-duty employee at a hospital, police station, a fire department, or a responding paramedic or uh, EMT, emergency medical technician. And so this law is very positive. Uh, We don't know how many of those 200 children would have been abandoned, but we do know that that law has saved lives, and that is the positive value of pro-life laws. They save lives. Our... uh, conference. Just wanted to give a brief update and uh, give you a brief promo for it. Uh, They'll be on September 21st in Kalamazoo, uh, the very beautiful Fetzer Center right on the campus of Western Michigan University. It'll be a great conference. Uh, Registrations should be in by September 8th. That's when the registration price goes from 55 to 65. Uh, And so you want to get your registration in if you're interested in attending. It's a great conference. Our two main workshop speakers are Mary Rathke, who was uh, conceived in rape, and uh, she'll be talking about that critical issue. And then Sarah Zagorski is uh, someone who's almost a victim of abortion. She'll be talking about that. Uh, again, the focus of our conference uh, is going to be on Roe versus Wade. Uh, it's really the theme. It's been our whole theme for the year. And uh, besides our two main workshop speakers, uh, General session speakers will have five workshops 
I'm doing a workshop on social media, four other great workshops dealing with a lot of other issues. So come on out. It's only $55. It's a great deal. You get a great lunch, get a full day's worth of speakers on a, on a beautiful, beautiful venue in Kalamazoo. One more thing I wanted to briefly talk about. Uh, next week on Wednesday, we're going to be announcing a new initiative that we have taken uh, action on to address the high abortion rates in the city of Detroit. So I don't want to give you too many more details. If you're really interested, uh, you're, you're going to see the story in the news. We're going to send a press release on Wednesday. Uh, but if you want to be the first to know, you can listen in for our uh, teleseminars. Um, we're going to do a teleseminar to give an update on this on Wednesday morning. It'll be at 10.30. If you want details, you can go to our blog, which you can find right off our website, rtl.org. And that will give you information how to tune in to the teleseminar and be the first to know. Um, it's an exciting initiative. It's a small step. But it's a very important first step as we focus our efforts on Detroit. Uh, we have, obviously, we focused on it before, but uh, if you look at abortions declining elsewhere in the state, and abortions really saying so prevalent in the city, despite the fact the city has lost so much population, uh, it's an indication that Detroit, the abortion rate there is just not being addressed. And so um, we're going to be pivoting and bringing a much greater focus to this problem. And um, Wednesday will be a really positive uh, announcement that you can get on board with. It'll be very encouraging. All right, now let's get into our feature of the day, talking about our new end-of-life materials. So just to give you a brief background, uh, end-of-life issues, euthanasia, uh, doctor-prescribed suicide have been our focus for a very, very long time. Uh, and, and again, in the mid-90s, and we've talked about uh, Jack Kevorkian and his killings, uh, we addressed that. We fought a effort to legalize doctor-prescribed suicide in the state in 1998, and Michigan voters decisively rejected it. But uh, other states have not had similar success, uh, nor have they had a similar focus. Uh, euthanasia advocates have been able to kind of slip in under the radar in some cases. But uh, that's not been the case in Michigan. and So we've always had uh, educational materials to help people understand these issues. In particular, we had a series of brochures uh, published by the Advocates for Better Care. And these, issue, these brochures dealt with all of the issues that you would confront in end-of-life situations. Now, in the past, we've always sold these brochures, which uh, kind of goes against the grain of our philosophy on educational materials. We offer pretty much everything that we have for free for anyone. Most of our flyers and fact sheets and materials can be printed freely by anyone. Uh, all the files are available right on our website uh, under the Pro-Life Issues menu, our fact sheet and handouts. We even have a link to it on our front page. We want people to have the tools necessary to educate on pro-life issues. So for us, it didn't really make sense as we're, again, revisiting the issue of uh, euthanasia and doctor-prescribed suicide in the state to have those materials be for sale only. And two, we had, we had a lot of materials, and something we wanted to focus on is making sure that uh, we prevent, present these materials in a very concise and organized manner so you don't have to refer to five different documents when you can get one that addresses all these issues sufficiently. And so we've consolidated these brochures down into two new materials. Uh, one is a brochure on advanced directives, and the other 
is on uh, sort of the aspects of end-of-life care. And I just want to mention, of course, we always have our durable power of attorney for healthcare packet, which is uh, very critical. Um, and really, everyone needs to have a durable power of attorney for health care to make sure their wishes are respected. Uh, that's always been available and will always continue to be available. Uh, but first, let's talk about our advanced directives brochures that kind of gives you some more information about how that came about and what some other documents out there are. So the title of this brochure is Advanced Directives and Respecting Life, because ultimately that's what every advanced directive is for, respecting your life and your wishes. And so uh, the, the brochure first mentions um, some important facts about, you know, who is the decision maker in this? And uh, most of the issues we're running into with Dr. Tribe's suicide is it, uh, it, it talks about you being the decision maker, but really it shifts the focus of those decisions to insurance companies and doctors in many cases. And many of the documents that the euthanasia movement has put out um, take decision-making away from you. So they cloak their efforts under the guise of personal autonomy, but in fact you're losing your autonomy often um, when you're following along with what this movement has to say. And so right off the bat, we talk about the importance of that durable power attorney for health care. And what that does is it gives power of attorney, just like it does for financial issues, uh, to a person, your patient advocate. And in this durable power of attorney, especially if you use our durable power of attorney, uh, which is very detailed uh, and explains, you want to put in there your broad um, desires. So I want treatment in this case, or I want treatment in that case, or I want this in this situation. Um, and, and you can't obviously come up with every single situation that happens. And so that's where the critical part comes in. You're giving your wishes plainly in the document, and then you're empowering an individual that you trust to fight for your wishes. And as in too many cases, we've talked about recently in this podcast, that the patient advocate has to be the one fighting for you against doctors, insurance companies, hospitals who for various reasons aren't wanting to give you as a patient the care that you desire or that may be actually effective. Now, once the brochure talks about durable power of attorney for health care, it then goes into living wills. And this is so critical for people to understand because so many people will hear living wills, living wills, living wills. In fact, I was I was tuning in the radio last night and, and a drive to the to the Dave Ramsey show, and the da uh, Dave Ramsey always talks about you need a will, you need a will, and one of his ads is saying you need a living will and use this organization, they'll also give you a living will. Um, and that sounds good, you know, that you're going to be planning ahead for your, um, planning ahead and, you know, for any end-of-life situations, but don't do a living will. Bad, bad, bad. Why is a living will bad? Well, it's a very generic document. It pretends to give you uh, informed consent about future medical situations and to express your wishes. But the problem is most of them are stock documents. Um, they don't really encourage you to thoughtfully go through what you want. Most of them are biased towards withholding or withdrawing treatment to bring about your death, especially in regards to food and water, which we'll talk about in a minute. Living wills were originally created by the euthanasia movement. 
They were first introduced in a 1969 law article titled Due Process of Euthanasia, The Living Will, A Proposal. Now, I don't know about you, but people who are enthralled with the idea of dying really aren't people that I would trust to design a document to protect your life. And unfortunately, in many situations, these documents are going to be necessary to protect your life. So the living will is really a first step for the euthanasia movement. They really failed to provide direction to healthcare providers. Because again, as we talked about with the durable power of attorney healthcare, you can express your wishes, but there are many situations that come up that go outside of the bounds of what's in a document. And you really need someone to be your advocate. You really can't trust a hospital to look at a document that you prepared in advance and your document doesn't deal anything doesn't have anything to deal with your situation in particular and so you're leaving the decision in the hands of the hospital and maybe the hospital is great and is going to go out of their way maybe they're Nostradamus and kind of predict what you might want but uh, you know hospitals are full of human beings and they don't always do a good job of guessing what you want you know and the the language used in living wills is very sloppy Um, you know it's just not something that really needs to be something that you should do, ever. You really need a durable power attorney for healthcare. Now there's another document that's gaining in um, gaining in popularity lately. It's called a POST document, or uh, it has several different names. POST, POST, MOST. Uh, they all have the basic same intent. Uh, POST is Physician Orders for Life-Sustaining Treatment. Um, so uh, post is physician orders for scope of treatment, most is medical orders, etc., etc. Basically, the idea is it's an advanced directive, and you're giving a doctor a uh, clear medical order that you are agreeing to. And so in theory, it's better than a living will. Living will is very problematic, while post, uh, post is designed to have medical orders that you're agreeing to. Almost uh, like, for example, if you're facing a serious illness or condition, you're agreeing to stuff in advance. And so, in in theory, that's great and wonderful. And it's moving closer, as we say in the brochure, to legitimate informed consent. Because it's when you have known conditions you're dealing with, and certain medical developments that could happen out of those conditions are more predictable. And that's good. But, again... These scenarios are not always foreseeable. And in many states, again, these are all state-specific, pulse documents can often be biased towards withholding or withdrawing treatment, just as a living will. Or it can also contain medical orders that are really unrelated to your medical condition. You know, again, you're dealing in the realm of hypothetical issues, and what you've expressed in the document doesn't always deal with those issues. And so, uh, you know, in Michigan, uh, recently some Pulse legislation has been passed, and um, we've been heavily involved in that process, making sure that it wasn't biasing people towards uh, decisions to simply cut off medical treatment without regard to patient autonomy. But again, durable power training for healthcare, always, always, always. You need to communicate with your patient advocate what your wishes are in the document and in person. Your doctor needs to know that you have the durable power of attorney for health care, and your patient advocate needs to be willing to communicate clearly 
and powerfully on your behalf. Uh, get all of your family on board with it as well. Make sure that you are operating in that hospital and there's a conflict. Make sure that you're operating as a unit because that's going to be the best opportunity you have to make sure that your wishes are respected. All right, our other brochure that we've developed is called Positive Care or Euthanasia Pitfall. And this deals with a couple important issues, hospice, pain management, and medically assisted feeding, that food and water issue. Um, so uh, here's a couple of really important points to remember as you read through this document, uh, this little brochure, which is very detailed. It's got a lot of words, but it's, it's very concise at the same time. Uh, these are really important issues, but it gives you the important things that you need to know. Uh, first issue again, communication is very key. Understand your prognosis and your wishes and have them expressed clearly. That will help you as you work through all of these issues in end-of-life situations, which again aren't always uh, foreseen. You can't deal with hypothetical. An end-of-life care situation could happen at any time. I don't want to sound morbid, but you could have a stroke as soon as you're done listening to this podcast. Are your family members prepared for that? Is your document expressing your wishes prepared for that? Now, uh, what what are your wishes? Again, that's not for us to decide. Um, really, your wishes are, are, are up to you, and that's important because patient autonomy really does matter. Uh, sometimes we get accused of, you know, by opposing suicide of saying that autonomy, uh, you know, we don't, really don't respect people's wishes. And that's really not true. Our, our argument, again, you know, suicide is not something that really respects people's wishes. But you have a right to refuse unwanted or burdensome medical treatment. Now, what is a burdensome medical treatment to you? That depends. What are you willing to uh, forego? How old are you? Uh, what is your determination on your, your other health conditions? It's all very patient-specific, and really it should be patients deciding what kind of care they should or shouldn't receive. And so you have a right to refuse unwanted or burdensome medical treatment. Now, okay, you've done that. You have uh, determined your wishes. You express them clearly. But you're in a situation where you have a terminal illness. What next? Um, we really want to encourage you to look into hospice care. Uh, you know, hospice care is designed to be a holistic approach to caring for you. And often it doesn't mean necessarily that you can no longer receive uh, treatments. That's not the goal of hospice. The goal of hospice is it's an expectation that you're moving towards the end of life. But again, diagnoses of uh, terminal conditions are often extremely wrong. And so the core principle of hospice is not to hasten or prolong the process of death um, once your curative treatment has uh, ended or um, you know is continuing some other form. The hospice is there to meet all of your concerns. And so they need to be addressing your physical needs, emotional needs, relational, and spiritual. It's the, the desire is to make dying a process, not an event, and a process that respects your wishes and is fulfilling for you and your loved ones. So I encourage you to look into hospice and make sure you pick uh, you know, a good hospice. Make sure you pick a good program that's going to respect uh, you as an individual and value your life no matter how long or short it's going to be. The next issue that we need to deal with is uh, pain control. Now, a lot of the push for euthanasia, doctor-prescribed suicide, uh, 
a lot of the talking points deal with, uh, oh, you're going to be hooked up to all these machines and in pain. But the reality is that there should be no situation where the pain control is not uh, adequate for you. We've had great advances in pain control. And there's a couple concerns still with that. Um, you want to make sure that you are not uh, sedated into a state where you can't communicate unless that's absolutely necessary. Uh, you need the most effective amount of pain uh, control possible that takes care of your pain but leaves you with the most um, autonomy. Um, you want to make sure that uh, we're not sedating people to death. That's a real problem um, is uh, stealth or passive. Uh, well, it's not really a passive euthanasia. In that case, it's active euthanasia, but it's kind of done on a stealth level where you're just giving pain medication to the point where you're dying. That's wrong. Okay? We don't want to hasten your death. Now, if you're in a situation where the only way to control your pain uh, may or may not lead to hastening your death, well, that's that's an unintended side effect of uh, treatment that's addressing your physical symptoms. But we shouldn't be sedating people to death. But you should also, again, don't feel uh, hesitant to request what is needed. And again, um, we don't want people addicted to pain control, which is a certain possibility. Um, and there's a certain growing trend of overuse of narcotics in terminal patients with no regard um, to their situation. But uh, you have a right to have your wishes respected, and there's no reason that shouldn't take place. And it is possible to have long-term chronic pain management without addiction. That's important, too. Now, food and water. This is a very, very important point to remember, and we're going to close as the last point in the document uh, the brochure deals with and something you really need to be clear on. There's a real growing problem, uh, especially with the euthanasia movement, with living will documents that define food and water as a medical treatment. Okay, Food and water are not medical treatments. When you go to McDonald's and you get a Big Mac, you are not receiving a medical treatment. Food and water, food and fluids, are basic necessities of life, basic for the sustenance and the sustaining of life. Often this situation comes up with, uh, you look at Terry Schiavo, for example, you know, in the public mind, Terry Schiavo is plugged into all these machines, but in reality, Terry Schiavo didn't have any machines. She wasn't being, her life wasn't being sustained on a, she wasn't on a ventilator, she wasn't on any of that. The only medical, the only, uh, medical treatment she needed was basic, basic care. Um, and the only thing that she really needed was her life to continue was to just be fed and given water, just like any other human being, like you and me. And so she was getting, I know she was getting, uh, food by, uh, by a tube um, she wasn't able to chew it, uh, particularly, um, you know, don't want to get too into the sh deep into the Shivo case, but um, especially when they ceased giving her physical therapy and uh, let her languish without uh, proper care for her as a person. Uh, but I digress. Food and water are not medical treatments. You know, um, in Oregon, they were dealing with a case recently where they wanted to declare spoon feeding. A medical treatment. So when someone uh, was having dementia or is unable to feed themselves, if someone else uh, lifting food to their mouth with a spoon so they could eat it, that was going to be declared a medical treatment. Um, I'm sorry, you know, uh, I have a uh, baby at home. It's going to turn one next week. 
uh, it's not medical treatment when I give her her uh, food by spoon. I'm not a medical doctor. Do I need a license to uh, spoon feed my daughter? I mean, that's just ridiculous. And the goal of that, again, is to be able to withhold care from people with dementia or in other situations. And so we need to remember, food and fluids are not a medical treatment. They should always be a given of care, unless there's a special situation where they might harm a patient. For example, uh, you need to fast before surgery, or at the very end of your life, sometimes a person is just unable to assimilate the food and fluids. Uh, Their body's unable to process it. In that case, it's perfectly acceptable not to give it to them, because they... um, it would actually it would actually harm them. It isn't actually benefiting them in any case. But for people who are whether in their comas or they have dementia or any situation, they need to be given food or fluids. Um, we remember we talked a couple of weeks ago about the case of Genevieve Marnin, um, who works in our legislative office. Her dad, Bob Tank, the hospital was trying to kill him by withholding fluids from him when his body was perfectly able to assimilate those fluids and it was being it was his body you know it was it was effective care it was effective care and it's basic care and the hospital refusing it without his knowledge without his wishes being respected um in order to hasten his death and so withholding food or fluids to cause someone to die by dehydration or starvation is not okay and you really don't want that to be in one of your documents Death by dehydration is awful. You want to talk about dying peacefully or dying with dignity, as euthanasia movement likes to put it. Death by dehydration is not dignified. We should never withhold food or fluid uh, to cause death by dehydration or starvation. That is a failure of our medical establishment. And chronically ill patients... With the long-term needs for assisted feeding, they're the most vulnerable to this uh, pressure to remove food and fluids to cause their death. And again, we really need to be uh, clear here about what your condition is. Are you in a simply chronic state, or do you actually have a terminal condition that is near death? Again, if you're in a terminal state that is near death, there may be a situation where food and fluids is going to harm you. And that's perfectly acceptable to not give them to those patients because it's benefiting them. In a chronic state, uh, starving you to death is horrible, simply put. And we can't declare uh, food and fluids futile on the basis that it doesn't cure the underlying condition. You know, food and water aren't really going to cure a disease since you can't really declare them as futile care. It's basic care. It's not medical care. So please do keep that in mind. So these brochures are available, again, on our website. You can freely print them, download them. Um, They come in nice color copies. We always have them available at events. Uh, And again, they're free now. We're uh, We're not charging people for copies. You can do it absolutely free. And so educate yourself. Help educate others. Um, Make sure that uh, anyone that you know, um, any elderly person, anyone with a chronic health condition is aware of these issues. Make sure that they are protecting their rights adequately and that they're prepared for these situations. You don't want to hit an end-of-life 
care situation and not be prepared. That's when the conflicts, uh, the drama, the family fights can really begin, and often those can be prevented just with some simple planning. I know it's uncomfortable to talk about the idea of dying, but look, the survival rate for life on Earth is uh, 0%. It's going to happen to all of us, and all of us really need to be prepared, not for our, not just for ourselves, but for our loved ones, to make sure that uh, your dying process is not just a afterthought of your life, but is the uh, a proper, a properly lived part of your life, and that that process does matter. All right, that's all we have for this edition of LifeBeat. Join us again in two weeks where we're going to cover what we are going to announce for that new initiative to help deal with abortions in the city of Detroit. And we'll talk a little more in detail about the state of abortions in Detroit and give you a really good top-down picture of what's happening there. Thank you for listening, and have a wonderful weekend.